Welcome to De Beautiful's Digital Book Tour. This podcast series is a way for authors to connect with readers throughout America, even though their tours have been canceled due to COVID-19. To discover more debut authors, please visit debeautiful.net and subscribe to the podcast feed where we have in-depth interviews with people like Chelsea Beaker, Brandon Taylor, and Emma Copley-Eisenberg. Today's guest is the author of the 2013 Iowa Short Fiction Award-winning story collection, If I Had Known You Were Coming. She's also a graduate of the Bennington College Writing Seminars. Her first novel, Kept Animals, is out now. Her name is Kate Milliken. Hey, Kate, how are you doing during this weird time we're living in during COVID-19? It's a roller coaster, right? It's sort of like one day I feel cozy and at home with my family and wonder why we're not leaving and then remember what the world is outside and feel pretty, pretty paranoid and crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a wild yeah, this morning I walked to, I've been out of toothpaste and I was like, I have to go to the grocery store right when they open because I need to be back to start like my day job and do some podcasting and uh, just to see everyone in there with masks and just keeping their distance. It's like, this is, it's like a post-apocalyptic yeah, show, you know? Totally. And you come home like vibrating mm-hmm. with that anxiety, right? Yeah. 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 Um, but we're not here to, you know, be too anxious. We're here no. to talk about, <laughs> you have a book coming out during all of this. And I'm so grateful because we need books more now than ever. Um, your book is called Kept Animals. Tell readers a little bit about what it is. Sure. So I did not intend for this title to seem so apropos. <laughs> um, I started this book uh, nine years ago in 2011 um, before California had been ravaged by a number of wildfires. And I was actually looking to um, examine a time in my life, the early 90s, when I was a teenager, um, 1993, growing up in Southern California, and having been touched by a particular wildfire in Topanga Canyon, California, that started on November 2nd, 1993, in what was a really um, politically and culturally charged time in Southern California. It was the year after the LA riots. It was the year before Prop 187 was passed. There was just a lot of animosity in, um, in the environment, a lot of bigotry, a lot of homophobia. Um, so I knew I was going to set the novel in the months leading up to that wildfire. I wanted to fictionalize how it began um, because it was always deemed an arson fire. But I think now we all know from reading enough about California fires, it was most likely caused by a downed power line. They still have it listed as arson, I believe. Um, uh, there was there was like a real need to blame someone. Um, and I just remembered growing up at that age and that time in an Irish Catholic family, like there was just so much guilt and shame and feeling responsible for everything that was going on on like a global level. You know, it was just felt like you carried the burdens of the world on your back. Um, and I wanted to exca- excavate those feelings, but do it in a really character driven story. So I ended up telling a multi-generational story. It's um, the story of two young teenage girls and how their very different lives end up intersecting after a car accident in Topanga Canyon, California, and how those 
how that accident sort of is like a wick and a spark that leads to the wildfire. Um, but the story is actually told from the point of view of one of their daughters. Um, and it's her unearthing the circumstance, the secrets and the circumstance surrounding her uh, conception and her mother's relationship with this other girl, Vivian Price. Um, so that's, that's yeah. essentially what it is. And then before we jump into talking about the book, I wanted to give authors a chance to read because you're not going to be able to read on tour for the foreseeable future. What, uh, what part of the book will you be reading for us today? Um, you know, why don't I just, I'll read, I guess I just told you so much about this, but I'll read, why don't I read, it's sort of a, a prologue, but not, I'll read the very first page and then I'll read a little snippet of a scene from the first chapter. If that's okay, I'll do two little different things so you can, you can get the two different perspectives. I'll read to you from the daughter's first person's perspective, and then I'm going to give you a little scene of the mother's. Um, I'll set that up when I go to it. So this is just the very beginning of the book. On the morning of November 2nd, 1993, just a half mile up the road from where my mother was working as a stable hand, a fire started in Topanga Canyon, California. Fueled by Santa Ana winds gusting 60 miles an hour, the flames raced from the canyon summit, jumping switchbacks, bursting open chaparral, swallowing Manzanita whole, and reached the Pacific Ocean in record time. Despite an unprecedented number of firefighters, trucks, and air tankers dropping water from the sky, the fire's path and rate of consumption were dictated solely by the wind. From Calabasas to Malibu, residents fled, circumnavigating bottlenecked roads on foot, by horse, by rollerblade. Those who had them boarded boats and watched from the water as the coastline burned, a glowing snake cutting through ash-thick air, day turned to night. Mama once told me that if you cut down a canyon oak, you can see within its rings the marks of the fires it has withstood, wisps of smoke in the shape of half a heart. Even before I had been told them, I could feel these stories unfurling within me, stories of events that had happened before I was born, their heat still palpable. In the end, the old Topanga fire consumed over 18,000 acres, nearly 400 homes, and the lives of countless animals and the people who tried to save them. That area of the Santa Monica Mountains is known as a fire corridor, its topography and ecology inviting such large-scale burns. Yet this fire's cause remains listed as arson. They've never known who to blame. So then the book jumps. Um, so that's from 2015. And the book jumps back to 1993 and starts telling the story of her mother. Um, and in July of 93, how this particular day, it's one day in July that this accident happens. But I'm going to read to you a tiny little bit that is her sitting. So there's three girls involved in the, um, there's kind of like a love triangle between these three teen girls. And this is the first night that two of them have sat out on the balcony of her mother's childhood home. So this is June and Rory is that first person narrative's mother. And they're sitting out on the balcony looking down on the estate of this Hollywood family below because in Topanga, all these houses are tiered in this crazy way on hillsides. So 
she's living in this little dilapidated A-frame at the top of this hillside, and she can see down to this palatial estate with, like, this beautiful pool. And so this girl, June, has come over to look down and spy with her. Um, and June is an out and proud lesbian. Rory is um, in denial about her sexuality, but she's been fascinated with the teen daughter, Vivian, of this Hollywood family below. So they're sitting out on this balcony and they're getting high and they're stoned in this scene. So an accordion of time had spread open. 10 minutes, an hour. They'd watched Vivian Price go in the house and come out again. June remained quiet, mouth open. Rory felt light and tired, half steeped in a pleasant dream. She was wishing for her bed when Vivian Price came out of the house. June covered her mouth, mouth as if she'd been about to shout. Vivian was wearing the black one piece, her hair pulled up in a high bun, a towel flung over her shoulder. Rory straightened, feeling as if she'd just made good on a promise. Vivian looked in her mother's direction, but neither of them spoke. She dropped the towel at the pool's edge and stepped onto the first stair, the marbled light of the pool dancing against her skin. Rory let out the grip of her ribs as steadily as she could. She'd been holding her breath. Vivian's dive into the water was silent. She came up, swimming a breaststroke, her face rising and dipping at the water's surface. June laughing, quiet laugh. She put her hand on Rory's knee as if to steady herself. What? Rory asked. I mean, are they like vampires? June's laughter peeled higher, her hand still on Rory. They are pale, Rory said quickly, somewhat worried that Sarah Price could hear. It wasn't true. There wasn't anything sickly about the Prices, Vivian Price especially. She was beautiful. Rory knew this from the magazines, but she knew this from a distance too. It was clear in the way Vivian carried herself, as if leading others behind. When Vivian stepped out of the pool, she slung her towel over her shoulder without drying off. June's hand loosened. It wasn't until the sliding glass doors closed that Mrs. Price, her mother, looked up in Vivian's direction, her daughter already inside. You think she's pretty, June said. I can tell. She was facing Rory, the proximity of her breath, its disrupting warmth. I'll light this again, she said, lifting the joint to Rory's mouth. There was one hit left. Rory inhaled, smelling the lighter's fuel. Now keep it in, June said. Her hand was back on Rory's knee, the other on Rory's shoulder, turning her until June's cropped hair hung like a curtain around their faces. Now exhale, June said, her mouth already on Rory's mouth as she spoke. Not a kiss. Rory recognized this was not a kiss. June was inhaling, pulling the smoke up out of Rory's lungs and into her own. Rory started to cough, and June sat back, her lips sealed, her breath held, until she smiled. I wasn't sure you'd let me do that, she said, a thin ribbon of smoke escaping the side of her mouth. End scene. <laughs> Your book, Kept Animals, it it has like everything I look for in a book. It, it, like it takes place partially in the 90s. There's... Uh, uh, teens grappling with sexuality and then there's also the mother-daughter relationship because it's multi-generational i know you you mentioned in the introduction that you know this fire was real and it it, and it was in the back of your mind how did all these pieces eventually fall into place you know um i 
I knew that I wanted to write about Topanga and I knew because it was just sort of this fabulous mix of people the time that I spent there but I didn't really know what my access point was until I saw a photograph by um, the late Frances uh, Francesca Woodman, the photographer. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but I was looking at an old issue of the Missouri Review and they were profiling, you know, or featuring a few of her photographs. And there was one photograph in there that was of this girl kind of slipping out of a curio cabinet. She's like falling out of it. And in the curio cabinet are all these taxidermied animals. And that was just like, that when I saw that picture I was like there's two of my characters the photographer the girl falling out of the curio like that feeling of these kept animals literally these taxidermied animals and like being a teen girl and trying to you know dealing with my own queer identity and that time like just feeling so hemmed in by life at that period of time in the early 90s and it it solidified everything for me. And that was actually the first scene I wrote for the book was that photograph being taken, like that photograph inspired the first scene, but now it doesn't occur until three quarters of the way through the book. Um, yeah. So that's how I got started. Yeah. I always find those origin stories super fascinating because I'm sure, you know, from just talking to other people who have written books the little like that photograph is the littlest piece of information and a, a good writer could run wild with it and you could take parts of your own life and insert it into different different aspects um with you mentioned like grappling with queerness and s- sexuality did you find it easy or difficult to write that for the teens from their perspective um you know, it was so easy for me to write June, who is the out and proud lesbian, and yet her parent, you know, her father in particular, like, thinks so little of her because of it. Um, it was so easy for me to write her, um, and it was really easy for me to write Vivian, who's, like, sort of just messing around with being bisexual, like, using it as a power dynamic, Um it was hardest for me to write Rory, and it's probably because I felt the closest to her, um, our stories maybe overlap the most but uh yeah it wasn't easy and it wasn't easy for me you know I've I've always been out with my friends I hadn't always been out with my family and always been out with my spouse but that that was part of the journey of writing this book was really coming to terms with my own shame from when I was younger and um and and being a little more proud of who I am as a 40, 42 year old woman. Like, come on already. You know, but the world's changed a lot in the nine years it took me to write this book. Yeah, definitely. Did you find yourself putting Rory in situations you were in or you wish you were able to be put into as a teen? Um, I definitely put Rory in situations that I was put into. Um, not that they were, none of them were really situations I wish I'd been put into. <laughs> so that probably was the hardest part because it was, I felt really tenderly toward her and then having to relive some experiences. Um, and, and also I didn't know how much I was writing in my own life in a, for like five years of writing. it. I was like, oh, I'm just making so much stuff up. And then there was just one day where I was like, oh my God, that's about that. And that's about that. And oh no, and then it became much harder to write. You know, oh really? Then I, yeah. then I got locked up a little bit because I lost that that creative distance. What, what helped you break um, through that locked up period? 
Oh man. A lot of time spent alone. I mean, I, I think the only reason I was able to push through was to like remove myself from my daily life for these like three to four day times that I could get away um, and really live in it. And then it was also music. Music had such a big influence on helping me close down the critical brain and like hear a song and know shoot for the tone, like shoot for the feeling of that um, instead of it being at all about me. Yeah, yeah. The reason I'm digging so much into it is just like, it, it, it felt so incredibly personable or personal. And I like, I'm not a, queer teen girl but i felt the emotions these girls were all putting forth like during that time period in the book oh i'm i'm so glad to hear you say that and 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 part of it is it's you know 1993 it's these teens dealing with with their life and then the other half of the book is rory's daughter 2015 present Mm -hmm. time what was it like writing her that was, you know, she was the first, like, I knew that she needed to be a part of the story from the very beginning. Um, I think probably because I had just had children when I started writing and that awareness of like generational reverberations was so part of my daily life and wanting, you know, wanting to unlearn some of my own trauma. So I wasn't passing it on. Um, and I wanted to see like, what, what if you don't unlearn that trauma? What if like you're hiding from your past the whole time? Um, so I wanted to give that, what, what happens when a parent doesn't deal with their own lives and their own identity. And Charlie was my way to voice that. So she was really hard for me to access because it wasn't really something I understood. Um, And it wasn't until, you know, I'd written her chapters in all kinds of different ways. And she actually would show up a lot more in the third person stuff. And it was finally, I had to just make a clean break of giving her her own first person solid chapters in between her mother's chapters. Um, And it wasn't until I went to Wyoming where I'd set the book, where I'd set her storyline that I really like then she just came to me then like those nine chapters just sort of rewrote themselves in this awesome flood of feeling because I knew what it was like to live you know walk the grounds where I imagined her living I knew what that school looked like like I really needed some accuracy um, beyond the research I'd been able to do as uh, you know the person with kids at home I'd done a lot of Google Earth and a lot of Wyoming books but I hadn't been able to go so once I went, that unlocked a lot for me. It sounds like this book really came together fairly naturally with with how and, and organically. What were the difficult parts of physically writing it? I know you talked about that locked downness uh, when it came to Rory, but did, what was difficult about f- getting the actual pace and rhythm and flow of this book? Well, I think because it is so many points of view. <clears throat> um, and I knew, I, I knew what needed to happen. You know, I knew I had the end point of the fire. Um, and so getting, 
getting there, uh, I knew I was always working toward, like, I really, I thought of it as a fire, as, as a, a wick and a spark, like these lives intersecting so that it was like, it's almost like that cartoon, you know, bomb thread where you're watching the spark go down until it hits the bomb. So I was I, knowing that you're going toward bomb <laughs> is a little bit daunting. <clears throat> it can make you get stuck around page 300 for a while. <laughs> um, so that was that was the hardest part of it. And then I learned that I could not write the last like 40, 30 or 40 pages of the book. I, I knew them so well, but I never committed them to paper until I reached them because it was so much. It, it is hard. I don't want to, you know, give too much away, but it is it is a big um, conflagration of things of all these threads I've laid down. So I could only write those pages in the middle of the night. <laughs> and I didn't know why. Like, I only worked on them from 1 a.m. until, you know, the sun came up. And I was like, why? This is like ruining my regular daily life. Like, what is this? And I said it to a writer friend. And she was like, well, in the middle of the night, you're less triggered. Like, you have less cortisol in your system. So I could get objective on it. And I could read it like a reader would instead of getting all tangled up in my own feelings. Uh-huh. And then after after you finally got those last pages out, uh, I just, with books like these with multiple multiple perspectives, multiple timelines, I like to talk a little bit about editing because I'm just a nerd when it comes to that. Was there a lot I of love was there a lot of shifting <laughs> things around? Was there a lot of changing voices? Totally. What, yeah. What, yes. was, what was that yeah, process there like? Was, there were there were so this we when I sold this book, which was. A couple of years ago, my editor had just started at Scribner and she had kind of a big backlog. So there was a little bit of a lag because she had other books she had to keep up on. I think I was the first novel she bought, but that was in 2017. So then she needed time to catch up and it was really good. You know, at first you're like bummed out, like, oh, my book won't come out for a while. But it was really good for me to have that distance on the text because I had sold her this big 440 page draft. And then when I went back to it with her notes, I was like, oh my God, of course, like, of course these things need to happen. And so the biggest edits that happened to my eye were after I'd sold the book. Um, Charlie's chapters, like in, and in that interim, I got to go to Wyoming. <laughs> so I got to rewrite all of Charlie's chapters and I broke it up. I really looked at it in terms of a three act structure, like wanting to give just because it is so much to hold. It is so many people. I really needed it to have every character to have their own beginning, middle and end story um, and to have all of those braid together. Um, it took a lot of cork board on my bedroom wall and a lot of postcards, you know, like post-it notes and cutting things out, and laying them on the floor. Um, and I, and I wanted it all to fit together just right, you know, like a puzzle piece, because that, that final picture was so clear. That was the one thing that was like set in stone for me were those last 30 pages. Mm. Were, um, yeah. Were her notes mostly, or I mean, what, what were her notes specifically on Charlie that you remember? You know, we could, it, I, my relationship with my editor is really awesome because it's almost, it's less, She's just like not direct. She's not like, um, what's it called? Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, there's no, there's no dictating like what needs to happen. She, she and I were really in conversation. Um, and it was, you know, she would say something and I would be like, oh, that's, 
totally speaking to this instinct I had, but it's hard to listen to that when you're on your own. So then to have somebody confirm for you, like, no, I really, I'm thinking maybe her first person voice has to leave these other chapters. Like we lose her too much and we need to define her in her own spaces. That, that was like the biggest, most important note I think I got for doing the first big revision. Um, that was really helpful. So yeah, the, it wasn't, I am an obsessive line and language editor. Like they didn't even want me to see third pass because they knew I couldn't help myself. <laughs> so it, was, it wasn't like she had to give me a whole, we, like we had so much fun in the final push of it because we went through the whole book and I did this massive edit of like 96 little minutia sentence things and she and I did it over the phone and, you know, arguing over whether or not to lose an adverb or to change the verb or to add a descriptive. It was like, then it got really fun because we both can get down to that, but she didn't, she didn't do that to me or do that with me until the very end. I just, she knew I would line edit, mm -hmm. till, you know, till the cow come home. As someone who does like to line edit a lot, and this is a very, very broad question, I understand that, but when do you know a sentence sounds and feels and is right? Um, I'm going to go with when the hardback arrives on your front door. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> like, I really, you know, I even looking at my ARC, I was like, telling my agent I'm like but I want to change but what about when we do a second printing like you know, and they're like go away like, like at some point it has to be done you know at some point it's good enough that was what she said to me because you really can if you're somebody who obsesses over that stuff and loves it and enjoys it um which I really do enjoy it because you can make a sentence mean 10 different things like with just moving one word um at some point you just have to go, that's good enough. Or you'll never get, like, I really probably would have wrote this book for another five years if they mm -hmm. hadn't taken it away from me. <laughs> I, I love that this book, it's so, I said it earlier, it's personal, it's so character driven. I really felt, even though it's interesting, as you said, like, you, it, I feel like when you were describing it, it sounded more plot based, like you knew you needed to get to the fire. And sometimes I could tell when books are like that, but with your book, it just felt so organic getting there. Um, do you read a lot of character or do you write more character driven or, or was this like just a, an outlier with that getting to the fire? You know, I think I'm definitely like my short story collection. I'm definitely a character. Like I think plot is character that there's no, so I had a lot, I had a much easier time writing short stories, obviously, like they're just shorter and <laughs> you can, you can hold the whole thing in your head. Um, but this, I think I, I knew because of that fire, I knew that plot and propulsion were going to matter because I was basically asking people to go from one tragic accident to another. And so I had, I had to make, you know, and they know that from the opening page. So I really needed the people inside to be rich enough that you wanted to stay with them. So character mattered more mm -hmm. than plot. Yeah. And then wrapping up i like to find out what other what authors are reading and what's interesting them now keeping them distracted from the outside world has anything piqued your interest totally. during during this whole time oh my gosh so many things i mean this i'm aware of so many books but i'll just um i'm reading katie simpson smith the everlasting right now which just came out a few weeks ago that talk about 
spanning lifetimes that that spans 2000 years. Um, Shiner by Amy Jo Burns comes out May 5th. That's a book um, also about family secrets, female friendship. Um, it's really beautiful. Like I love music and language and Amy Jo Burns has such a way with language. So that book, um, there's another book, uh, which is a small press book. I feel like it's so important for us to support small presses right now too. Um, this book's called The Pelton Papers and it's based on the painter Agnes Pelton, who was a contemporary of Georgia O'Keeffe. And it's this beautiful, it's like a novel in memoir um, from her from her, de her deathbed. And it's just about her life and it's incredibly beautifully written. Um, yeah, so many. Eden Lepucky has a new book of uh, essays that she's edited, um, essays and photographs called Mothers Before, Stories and Portraits of Our Mothers as We Never Saw Them. Obviously, I love the mother-daughter relationship, so that's one I'm super excited about. Yeah, lots. Thank you. Thank you so much to Kate Milliken for those book suggestions and talking about her debut novel, Kept Animals. You can find her on the web at katemilliken.com. She's on Twitter at Kate D. Milliken. I will link those in the show notes. As always, you can find Day Beautiful on all social media at Day Beautiful. The website is daybeautiful.net. Please subscribe to the podcast and check out all the previous interviews I've done with authors like Alexandra Chang and R. Eric Thomas. Stay safe out there. Until next time. Thank you.